I'm Dorothy Wickenden. On today's Politics and More podcast, David Remnick talks to Ta-Nehisi Coates about the reparations debate. Coates' 2014 Atlantic article, The Case for Reparations, helped move the discussion into the political mainstream. It's not often that an article comes along that changes the world. And that's exactly what happened with Ta-Nehisi Coates five years ago now when he wrote The Case for Reparations. That article in The Atlantic was a very big deal, to say the least. I was shocked at how big it was. I can remember going up to the Red Rooster to meet somebody for lunch in a restaurant in Harlem. And I was leaving, and there were two people at the bar. There was a black woman and a, a black dude who were older, and the dude's eyes get so big. And he says, oh, my God, oh, my God. And the, the woman said to me, she said, praise God. Praise God. <laughs> and he runs into the car and he has an Atlantic piece. Please sign it. Sign it. Praise God. I was like, what? <laughs> wow. And I would show up places and people would ask me to sign that, that, the paper. People who couldn't get access to the magazine would like print it out and would come because it like sold out, you know, at, at, at a certain point. Ta-Nehisi Coates somehow got everybody talking about reparations. Now, that subject had been discussed since the end of the Civil War. And in fact, there's a bill that's been sitting in Congress for 30 years about reparations. But now reparations for slavery and legalized discrimination is a real subject of major discussion among the Democratic presidential candidates. We're going to spend the entire hour of our program today talking about what exactly are reparations and what the political future of them might be. I talked to Ta-Nehisi Coates last week. Ta-Nehisi, for those who have, may not have read the article five years ago, what exactly is the case that you make for reparations, which is a word that's been around for a long, long time? Uh, the case I, I make for reparations is virtually every you know institution uh, with some degree of history in America, be it public, be it private, has a history of extracting wealth and resources out of the African-American community. Uh I think what has often been missing, this is what I was trying to make the point of in 2014, that behind all of that, you know, oppression was actually theft. In other words, this is not just mean. This is not just maltreatment. This is the theft of resources out of that community. That theft of resources continued, you know, well into the period of, I would make the argument, you know, around the time of, of the Fair Housing Act. So what year is that? So that's 1968. I, there are a lot of people But you're not who, saying that between 1968 and 2019, everything is hunky-dory. I'm not saying everything was hunky-dory <laughs> at all. But I'm trying. if you were speaking to, you know, the most intellectually honest, dubious person, because you have to remember, what I'm battling against this idea is that it ended in 1865. Make, with emancipation and the end the of the war. With emancipation, yes, yes, yes. And the case I'm trying to make is within the lifetime of a large number of Americans in this country, there was theft. A lot of your article was about Chicago housing policy. It was yes. a very technical analysis of yes. housing policy. When people talked to me about the article, and I could tell they hadn't read it, so it's kind of making a case for it. No, no, I said, <laughs> first and foremost, it's a dissection of a particular policy right. as emblematic of so many right. other policies. So out of all of those policies of theft, I had to pick one. You know, and that was really my goal. And the one I picked was housing, was our housing policy. You know, again, we, we have this notion that, you know, uh, housing as it exists today sort of sprung up from black people, you know, coming north, uh, maybe not finding the jobs that they want, bringing, you know, and thus forming, you know, some sort of pathological culture. And white people just being concerned, you know, citizens fled to the suburbs. 
But beneath that was policy. The reason why black people were confined to those neighborhoods in the first place and white people had access to neighborhoods, you know, further away was because of political decisions. The government, you know, underwrote that through FHA loans, through the GI Bill. And that, you know, in turn caused a devaluing of black neighborhoods and an inability to access, you know, credit to even improve neighborhoods. Now, your article starts with someone who lived through these racist policies, a man named Clyde Ross. Tell us the story of Clyde Ross. How did he react to the article? Um, so Mr. Ross was living on the west side of, of Chicago. He started out in Mississippi. Started out in Mississippi um, in, in the 1920s, born in Mississippi under Jim Crow. Uh, his family lost lost their land, You know, had their land basically stolen from them, had his horse stolen from him. He goes off, fights in World War II, comes back like a lot of people said, I can't live in Clarkston. I just can't, I can't be here. I'm going to kill somebody or I'm going to get killed. Comes up to Chicago. In Chicago, all of the social conventions of Jim Crow are gone. He doesn't have to move off the you know, street because somebody white is walking back. doesn't have to take his hat off or, or, or you know, look down or anything like that. You know, gets a job at the Campbell Soup Company. Um, and he wants the, you know, the last emblem of the American dream. He wants home ownership. Couldn't go to the bank and get a loan like everybody else. And he was making a decent wage. Making a decent wage, enough that he could save some money and, you know, um, enough for a down payment. And obviously he has no knowledge, none of us really did at that point, of what was actually happening, of why this was, you know, no concept of federal policy really. And so uh, what he ends up with is, you know, basically a contract lender, which is a private, you know, uh, lender who says, you know, hey, you give me the down payment and you, you own the house. But what they actually did was they kept the deed for the house. And you had to pay off the house in its entirety in order to get the deed. Although you were effectively a renter, you had all of, you know, lack of privilege that a renter has. And yet all the responsibilities that a buyer has. So if, you know, something goes wrong in the house, you have to pay for that. And so these fees would just pile up on these people and they would lose their houses. And you don't get your down payment back. Clyde Ross is one of the few people who was able to, you know, actually keep his home. There's such a moving moment in the piece where he's sitting with you and he mm-hmm. admits we were ashamed. We yes. did not want anyone to know we were that ignorant. That's and, right. and felt that his ignorance had extended to his understanding of life in America, right. in Chicago, which had seemed, to use the phrase of, of the Great Migration, the promised land. Right, right. And he felt like a sucker. And he felt stupid. Just as anybody would. And I don't think he knew on the level the extent to which the con actually went. And then living in a community of people, and this was something I didn't get into peace, but living in a community of people who are being ripped off, and they couldn't talk about it to each other because they wanted to maintain this sort of facade or this front that they own their homes, not that somebody else actually held the deed. And so for a long time, there was a great period of silence, you know, about it. Did Mr. Ross react to your piece? Yeah, he did. What did he say? Uh, he said reparations will never happen. <laughs> <laughs> so in the aftermath of the piece, piece comes out, 15,000 words in the Atlantic, mm-hmm. tremendous interest in it. You said this about the piece. I think it was in the Washington Post. You said, when I wrote the case for reparations, my notion wasn't that you could actually get reparations passed, right. even in my lifetime. Right. My notion was that you could get people to stop laughing. Right. What do you mean? Well, I mean, it was a Dave Chappelle joke. You know, um, and sort of what the joke was, was if black people got reparations, all the silly, dumb things they, they, they would actually do. Meaning? Uh, you know, buy cars, buy rims, <laughs> you know, fancy clothes. Right. You know, as, as though other people don't do those things. <laughs> you know, um, 
And once I started researching not just the fact of plunder, but actually the history of the reparations fight, which literally goes back to the American Revolution. You know, George Washington, when he dies in his will, he leaves things to uh, those who were enslaved. It wasn't a foreign notion that, that if you had stripped people of something, you might actually owe them something. It really only, you know, became foreign after the Civil War and, and emancipation. And so I mean, this is quite a dignified idea and actually an idea there was quite a bit of literature on. And, you know, the notion that it was somehow funnier I thought really, really diminished what was a serious, trenchant, and deeply, deeply perceptive idea. If you visited Israel between the 50s and a certain time, you would see Mercedes-Benz taxis all over the country. Mm. And you'd wonder, this is not a particularly rich country, Mm. at least not yet. And this was reparations. This was part of the reparations payment from Germany Mm. to Israel. And in, in the immediate aftermath of the Holocaust Second World War... What does reparations look like now? Right, what because we, they give them we, vouchers to buy German goods, right? right, what do right, we, right. W- what's being asked for? The rewriting of textbooks, the public discussion, what in terms of policy? How do you look at it? So first you need the actual crime document. You, you need, like, what you would get is the official imprimatur of the state to say this actually happened. You know, I just think that's a crucial, crucial first step. And the second reason you have a commission is to figure out how we pay it back. You know, I think it's crucial to um, tie reparations to specific acts, which, again, why you need a study. Um, This is not, you know, I checked black on my census, therefore, Mm -hmm. you know, I I don't think, I'll I'll give you an example of this. For instance, we have what I would almost call a pilot, a significant reparations program right now actually running in Chicago. Uh, John Burge, who ran this terrible, you know, unit of police officers that tortured uh, black people and sent a lot of, you know, innocent black people to, to jail you know, over the course of, I think it was like 20, 20 or so years. And then once he was found out in Chicago, there was a reparations plan put together where his victims were actually given reparations. But in addition to that, crucial to that, they changed how they taught history. And you had to actually teach John Burton. You had to actually teach people about what actually happened. So it wasn't just the money. It was there was some sort of, uh, I hesitate to say educational but I guess that's the word. We use the educational element to it. And, and I just think you, you can't win this argument by trying not to hide the ball, not, not in the long term. You know, and so I think both of those things are crucial. Tanahasi, so as of this moment in 2019, there are more than 20 Democratic presidential candidates running. Eight of them have said they'll support a bill to create, at least create a commission to study reparations. What do you make of that? Is it symbolic or is it lip service or is it just a way to secure the black vote? Or is it something much more serious than all that? Uh, it's probably in some measure all four of those things. Um, it certainly is symbolic. Uh, supporting a commission is not reparations in and of itself. Um, it's certainly lip, ser- lip service from at least some some of the candidates. Um, I'm actually less sure about in terms of the black vote. This, you know, I mean, it may ultimately be true that this is something that, you know, folks rally around for votes, but I, I've, that's never been my sense. Are there candidates that you take more seriously than others when they talk about reparations? Uh, yeah, I think Elizabeth Warren is probably serious. In what way? Um, I think she means it. I, I mean, I guess it will break a little news. Um, after a uh, case for reparations came out, uh, she just asked me to come and talk one-on-one with her about it. This is five years ago and your yeah. piece came out in the Atlanta? Yeah, maybe it was a little later than that because I was, you know, but it was about the time. It was, with, it was well before she declared, you know, anything about running for president. And what was your conversation with Elizabeth Warren like? 
um, she had read it. She was deeply serious and she had questions. And it wasn't like, will you do X, Y, and Z for me? You know, it wasn't like I'm trying to demonstrate my serious, therefore, will you? Um, I have not heard from her since either, by the way. Have you talked to any candidates about it? No. Now, Tanas, you published your article five years ago. Barack Obama was president. Mm-hmm. We are now in a different time and place. Mm-hmm. How would you place the reparations discussion in this moment? Yeah, I think people have stopped laughing. And I think that's really, really important. You know, um, does it mean reparations tomorrow? No, it doesn't. Does it mean the end of the fight? No, no, it doesn't. But it's a step, you know, and I think that's significant. Now, what would you like to see the outcome of a conversation mm. or 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 the American equivalent of a South African mm-hmm. uh, study mm-hmm. into American history be? A policy for repair. You know, um, I think what you need to do is you need to figure out what the exact axes of white supremacy are and have been and, you know, find out a policy, you know, to repair each of those. In other words, this is not just a mass payment. So take, uh, you know, the area that I researched. The time I wrote the article, less every day, the time I wrote the article, they were living, you know, victims and are living victims who had been denied, you know, who had who been were on the south side and the west yeah, side of Chicago. Yeah, all over this country. Mm-hmm. All over this country. People who had been deprived, who had been discriminated against. Set up a claims office. Look at, you know, uh, the census tracts. Are those people actually still living there? You know, maybe you can design, you know, some sort of, you know, investment through resource. Maybe you can have something at the individual level. Maybe you can have something at the neighborhood level. And then you, you would go down the line. You would look at education. You would look at our criminal justice policy. You would go down the line and address these specifically uh, and directly. Is your job to just break the glass on a subject the way you do with reparations, or is it your job to then follow through the way a scholar would for years thereafter? Is it, do you feel mm, your, work, your work here is done and now I'm moving on to the next thing, as you have with any number of subjects? Or do you, or do you have to sustain it? Is that on you? I don't know. I really don't know. I would like to be able to move on. <laughs> um, but, but I recognize that that's not entirely up to me. You know, um, It's not? No. Not at all. I just feel like, you know, you, you know, if you write an article on reparations that has the effect that it actually does, which, which you know, I didn't expect, um, this is very hard to say. Um, I have to conclude that I clearly have something to say and a way of saying it that can affect things. So if that's the case, what is your responsibility then? What right have you to say, I'm done talking about this because I feel like it? I don't, I don't know that you get to do that. You know, I, I, you know I'm, I'm actually, I, I, I feel myself to be very, very grounded in the African-American struggle, even though I'm not, you know, I don't consider myself an activist. When I think about writing that article, I think about all the people before me who'd been making the case for reparations from, you know, street corners, you know, 125th in Harlem and couldn't get access, you know, to an August publication like that. And I think about how I got access. And it it strikes me that um, you you owe folks something. You know, you don't get to just do what you want. Tanhasi Coates, thank you so much. Thanks for having me. Tanhasi Coates is the author of Between the World and Me and We Were Eight Years in Power. His short story, Conduction, which is an excerpt of a forthcoming novel, is in the next issue of The New Yorker. 